Word for the Week is a podcast of Canaan Community Church, dedicated to the balance of Scripture for the wholeness of life. Learn more at CanaanCommunity.org. We've been going through the book of John. We're in chapter 14 now, and we're well into the last week of Jesus, his earthly life. And there are things that he has to say. What if you knew? What if you knew you only had a matter of really hours left and you had to tell people those last words? What would they be? Man. Well, that's where the Son of God is. He's in this situation where he is uh, sharing and he has to share quickly. And as we uh, look into this uh, chapter, it's very much um, like the other chapters you'll find. We're dealing with a backdrop of opposites and a, a, um, a very singular truth, and we'll get to that in a bit. But where Jesus goes is he foretells the rescue of humanity. He's telling them this is how it's going to come down. And he tells what his part is in it. And he tells what the Heavenly Father's part is in it. And he tells what the Holy Spirit's part is in it. But here's the question. This is where that colorful sheet comes in for you. Why? Why? What's the big deal in what he's going to say in this chapter? And the truth is, is um, there's at least 20 promises, just going through them, 20 promises that are communicated in this chapter. Those 20 promises, let me just kind of go through them real quick. If you get what he's saying in this chapter, all of these things are affected. If you don't get these things in this chapter, all of these things are affected. So for those who would embrace what Jesus is saying, the promises would be basically this. Yeah, we will not be troubled. We'll gain room in the Heavenly Father's house. We'll get a place prepared for you personally in heaven. Where Jesus is, you will be. There will be access to the Father. You'll be known by the Father. You'll see the Father, be loved by the Father. You'll have the ability to do, to do greater works than even Jesus is doing at this time. You'll have access to ask Jesus. You'll never be abandoned. You'll have full life now. You'll have eternal life uh, yet to come. And now, uh, life will take on a supernatural sense. You'll have Christ manifest himself to you. You'll be taught by the Spirit of God. You'll be filled with the Holy Spirit of God. You'll be given courage by the Spirit of God. Your memory will be sharpened by the Holy Spirit of God. You'll have peace beyond what this world can experience or understand. And you'll be given knowledge to know what you need to know in preparation for the challenges that are going to come. And just like them, they will come. There's some serious promises going on here, folks. Some serious all affected by how you understand what Jesus is trying to tell you in this chapter. It was the same for them then. So I turned into Beth a little bit this week, and I broke out the electronic, I guess you would say, the virtual highlighters, and started coloring my sheets. And I'm just going to go through by the colors. 
blue. What did it represent? An amazing thing I never saw until I went through after 40 years into John in this pattern that is exquisite. It is absolutely genius. Is somehow in every chapter to get to the point there are two opposites that form together and contrast and make a backdrop for one great singular truth that goes through the chapter. And the two opposites in the backdrop in this chapter are time. Time eternal and very limited or imminent time. We, we have these two things going on. Everything Jesus is telling us is forever stuff. It's all eternal stuff. He's eternal. The Father's eternal. What He's telling you, you better get it because it involves your eternity. All of this. But He's down to a matter of hours, really, to explain this. See, you know, you can click off almost partial days at this point. There's not much time to get what He's saying in this respect. So what's the single truth? Man, it's a toughie. It's the makeup of God Himself. Can you imagine the infinite being that created everything that is explaining His own makeup? Fry your brain type stuff. But that's where we are in this. He's revealing. And here's the interesting thing about John. John is about layer after layer of who the Messiah is. Up to this point, it was if you were following layer after layer of what it means, who is the Messiah, and the signs that show He is. And this goes on, but this chapter, it's kind of like Clint taking his cameras and zooming out and going from one person on the stage to a bigger picture. And that's exactly what's going on. We're zooming out on a bigger and, in fact, more detailed picture of who... God is. What makes God, God? What are the components, really, when you get down to it? And the beautiful thing is, Jesus doesn't blow the Old Testament out of the water. Keep in mind, we're still in the Old Testament. If, if you ever hear anything, it's like, nobody ever said this before, well, maybe nobody should. You know, th- there's a continuum to how God teaches and there's a lot of stuff that doesn't really cause them to bat an eye. It's a, in the Hebrew culture, the concept of God as Father, it's really nothing new. Or the idea that there is a Holy Spirit of God, nothing new. They may have saw it a little differently, especially how the, the Holy Spirit would grab the, uh, the prophets. And the idea of an anointed one or Messiah... Nothing new. They were looking for Him. They were looking for Him earnestly, and that's why the disciples are the disciples. So here we are, and we start talking about these three faces, these three angles, these three facets, however you want to say, of God. And the first reaction that we can have is, well, it's a mystery, we just don't know. And I can appreciate that. Might even say, how are we even supposed to know? And I can appreciate that. Here's the catch. Chapter 14 says, you can't know, but you must know. 
if you're going to understand the 20 promises, if you're going to experience them, Jesus isn't just having a table conversation here. He spends a whole chapter trying to explain this. I think it's kind of important, don't you? And that's kind of the counterpoint of it, is that those 20 promises that we've talked about just in this chapter are melded to the topic, obviously, of what Jesus is talking about. So what we do with what Jesus says will either enrich you in those promises or diminish you in those promises. Possibly bring you to life in those promises or see them destroyed. So the backdrop starts us there. And then we switch colors. We go to green in there. Green is the people in the scene. Sorry, that's the only rap line I have in the entire sermon. But I thought it was pretty good. Green is the people in the scene. Green represents the key people involved in here. Of course, we have Jesus. He's he's talking. And he's talking as... uh, as a man among them. Yes, he is Lord, but he is speaking as a man among them. So a human mind and a human voice is explaining the mystery of God. Pretty amazing thing going on. And he's doing it so that when, this is the whole point. Why is he even bothering? Because there is something coming down the pike very soon that if they don't understand what he is saying here, they're going to be confused they're going to be destroyed. They're going to be crushed by it. So you need to understand this. God has a plan in action, but you have to understand all of this about God to understand the plan and to be affirmed in the plan and you won't lose your way. That's what it's all about. So we have Jesus. Then we have Thomas and Philip. I could put in Chris and Steve, I guess. But here's Thomas and Philip and, and it's, And it's kind of beautiful because here's Thomas and he's just such a practical guy and and all he says is, Jesus says, time's short, I'm going away. And you'll follow me in that way in time. And and Thomas said, where are you you going? We don't know any way. (laughs) How are we going to go? He said, don't worry about it. You will in time. You will in time. You know why, Thomas? Because don't try and come up with some budget or don't try and come up with some great statement of faith or anything else. Is that I am the way. You want to know the way. I am the way. Whatever we're going through, primary thing, Jesus is always the way. Well, the problem for Philip was a little different. He said, show us the Father. Show us the Father. And Jesus says, and I quote, dude, You see me, you see the Father. When you are seeing me, you are seeing the Father. How can you ask? Show me the Father, you're looking at me. Even as many people are in there listening to this conversation going on, everybody kind of falls into the categories we're seeing. And I would dare say every believer at some point has been Thomas or Philip. To some level. There's some point we've been trying to find our way through a challenge, collectively or individually. 
and you're going, God, I don't know the way. I, I don't know how to get through this. And God said, don't sweat it. I am the way. When you figure that out, then you'll find your way through. And there's times we're like Philip, we're begging God. We're in these dark hours and we're saying, I can't see you, God. I can't see you. And he's going, dude, I'm standing right here. (laughs) I am right in plain sight to be seen. You don't realize it, but you will. Just give it time. We all seem to fall in with those characters in one way or the other. Yellow is the unfolding of the plan as you look through. They're literally within hours of the ugliest chapter in human history. The ugliest display of human nature in human history. There's betrayal that will be coming Manipulation, hatred, fear, helplessness, brutality, heartlessness, and loss of life. And it will all be, what makes it so ugly, it will all be directed at the one true God. Even worse in the name of God, fueled by politics. It won't just be a failure, it will be epically horrific. Epically horrific what is about to come down. And yet, those 20 beautiful promises that we talked about, they will blossom out of and through that horror. Not that the horror creates them, but that it cannot hold back the blossoming of the promises. Now granted, we're a little bit vicarious here in that we're, we're allowed into the upper room, we're hearing the dinner conversation, we're hearing what Jesus says. But the precepts and the dynamics are still a reality in our day. This is still the way it works between us and God, just like with those guys. The believer is still to be filled with the Holy Spirit. The word comforter is a bit of misinterpretation. Did you know that? Is, um, we tend to look at that and we think of a comforter. Well, when I get sick or if I'm feeling weak, God comes alongside me and strengthens me or helps me through it. Well, yeah, it plays that part, but the word parakletos really means courage. The whole idea is not just to give you some comfort. It's to give you the courage you need to carry on where you need to go. Jesus says we'll never be left as orphans and we'll have access to the Father and we can still have this peace beyond understanding and, and the manifesting of God is, will take place even in the darkest hour. This is why there is so much yellow on the sheet of paper you have. There's a whole lot of plan and promise going on and it's all for you and me when we get the chapter down. When we get down what he's trying to tell us, it still all applies to us. It still all applies to us. Takes us to the purple. Now we're getting to the nitty gritty. Here is God in all His majesty 
revealing Himself to us. As Jesus speaks of God, the plan doesn't even make sense until we start identifying what He's saying in these aspects of God, these three. So let's, let's just follow through. There's, there's Jesus. Sometimes we do a word study. Sometimes you do a word count. This is kind of interesting. Jesus refers to Himself in the first person 108 times, probably depending on translation, but 108 times in this chapter, I, me, my. I, me, my. Coming up in some way. First person, as we explain it is in grammar. There's a term we have, autonomy. Autonomy, that's to say a person or maybe a collective group of people have their own mind on something. An individual has his own will. He reasons in his or her own way. And they have a personal identity. So I am standing here, I am Kevin. There is Ron. Thankfully for Ron, he's not Kevin. But I could say the same thing, Ron. So We are two different people. They're, we are autonomous beings. We are... Uh, and that is, in effect, the definition of person. The fact that Jesus became fully human means he was. Easy enough to see. He was autonomous. He was, by definition, a person. However, what would ultimately send Jesus to the cross wasn't that he was a person. You didn't crucify everybody just because they were a person. He was crucified because he was what? Oh, you're all, all afraid to say it. I see. He was God. Claimed to be God. That's what put him on a cross. So interesting thing, in the dictionary definition of person, he was a person and yet he was also divine. He was God. And in accordance with Hebrew understanding, John speaks of of the signs that made him this Messiah. When you see the terms Son of Man or Son of God, that is claiming to be God. Jesus claiming to be both. Now here's a, a fancy word you can take out of here and impress your, your friends and neighbors. Hypostatic union. Simply means this. Jesus was 100% human and 100% God. He had to be both to make this plan work, both from the Old and New Testament. The point being, what Jesus did, Jesus doesn't make sense unless He is entirely those two things. That's why the whole sacrificial concept of the atonement, my teeth will grit whenever I hear the, the law has been replaced. It hasn't been replaced. The Old Testament has not been replaced. It's been fulfilled. Whole different thing. It has been completed. Whole different thing. That's what the Son of God did. Well, we move on to Father with a capital F. Father, the Heavenly Father, is mentioned 24 times through the chapter so he's pretty important too. And Jesus speaks of himself in that autonomous way, and then he speaks of the Father in that autonomous way, in that 
distinct way, but in just the divine sense, really. The trick is they're existing at the same time. In fact, the Son actively does and says what? What does Jesus do? What did He say He did on this earth? He only did what the Father said. He only follows where the Father goes. He only does what the Father does. So they can't be the same person. He's following this other distinct individual in here. And He's doing it right now for those 20 promises that we looked at. It was important they understood this was going on. They are obviously two different beings. The Father is presented in a very distinct role. Jesus is in a distinct role and purpose. The Father sent the Son. The Father is the authority behind the Son. The, the term Father is an earthly term though. That's where we tend to get hung up. I mean, there's all kinds of fathers. We have Father's Day. And many of us in here are fathers. So we have that earthly side, but why do we use that word for God? Because we are so limited in how we can communicate through language. We just stretch the word to that point. We at least start getting the idea. The Father. A Father is a person... A dictionary definition for person goes like this. An individual being, and depending on the dictionary, it will say an individual human being. A self-conscious or rational being. A being that has certain capacities or attributes such as reason, morality, consciousness, or self-consciousness. And to that degree, the father then is a person. He fits... The idea of person, he's, he's here, this individual, human person, of course, doesn't fit. Because the Father is also God, he fits beyond. And this is where it goes. <laughs> he fits the definition of person and then exceeds it. He is our idea, humanly, of a person, but then continues beyond that. So the word ends up really getting stretched for it. But let's, let's just stop there and say that we understand the Father is His own being, His own entity. So is Jesus. We move on to the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit gets mentioned six times, always as a He and never it. It's a red flag when you hear people talking about the Holy Spirit and the word it flies by They've just went off the biblical rails. It is a he, according to God. And it's understandable, though, because when we think of personhood, like seeing Jesus as a person, not that hard. He, he was. He was a physical being. Seeing the Father because of his authority figure, not that hard to see him as a person. But the Holy Spirit, it's tempting to see him as an, this impersonal force. You know, this Luke, trust the force, right? Impersonal thing. But it's not. that Jesus makes sure we get this in chapter 14 because he will use the word parakletos, which in effect is really a friend in the military. A, a, a paraclete was, was not a bird, by the way. So some, some of you got it. Some of you said, oh, it's okay. 
Paraclete was in the military, that guy who would march alongside you and when we were getting ready for battle or the, you were ready to fall down exhausted, he would encourage you. He would give you the courage. He was a person doing this. There was a personhood to this. He wasn't just an ideology. It was an actual person next to you. The Holy Spirit has a distinct role as well, doesn't he? He testifies of the Son. That's his job, if you will. He works from the inside out, allowing the follower to understand what God is trying to tell him. And if he's not working in there, you will never understand. It takes that purpose, that side of God. He has his own identity. He is, by definition, also fits personhood, but he too goes way beyond our definition of human personhood. And, of course, he is God. No problem with that. That's the way he's presented. So we have this thing in here, but we run into a, a dilemma because Old and New Testament, how many gods are there, really? One. I'm glad to see you're so strong on that. Thank you for the <laughs> Thank you, Ron. There is one true God. One true God. But as we're talking, that seems to be getting confusing. And, and so we just want to throw up our hands and say, yeah, okay, but it's a mystery. And, you know, we can't know. Which would be fine, except here we are in this chapter. And it says, you must understand this stuff in order for the 20 promises that I'm also mentioning to to come to being. So how do we deal with this? Well, we have to understand at least to the point of how God fits himself into his own plan of your salvation. We have to understand it that far. So, so let's see what we can do with the limitations of the human mind and the human language and the immensity of God. Let's, let's just take a little bit of time on it. We do have a word, triune. And it fits in a lot of stuff. In fact, I was thinking it, it may sound irreverent, but around here we have tri-county trash, right? One service, three counties. The word triune isn't even a religious word. Triune simply means three distinct things become one. Example, there are places where three rivers will feed together into one river. And it's a triune situation. We have it in our geography. Um, according to the um, uh, federal government anyway, and how they divide up the country, you could come to Indiana and you could say you saw the Midwest. You could also go to Minnesota and say you saw the Midwest. Minnesota, especially in the wintertime, there's... Some of us in here can vouch for it. it is much different than Indiana in the, in the wintertime. Two distinct places, but yet one triune. There are only three responses to God as three entities. As Christ reveals them, not as I reveal them, as Christ reveals them. 
as we look at these three entities working in, in, for our salvation through their roles, and yet they are one, because you know what, Philip? What do you mean, show me the Father? When you see me, you saw the Father. So there, there's a unity going on. You could go the way of Unitarianism. Um, there, we just all we do is say we have one God. No distinction. Just kind of pass a blind eye to John chapter 14. And Unitarianism is really turns out to be a human construct. It, it makes it easier for us to understand. We end up with a version, say, like universalism. To be a Unitarian Universalist, you can believe in whatever God you want as long as they meet seven basic human principles that they've set up. Then you can believe anything. Well, if it's open to all gods, haven't you just created yourself as a god, the god of personal preference? Boy, is there a god of personal preference going on in the world today? So Unitarianism's not going to work for us. There's another one called modalism. Uh, and in this case, God just wears a whole bunch of hats. Sometimes pastors and elders can feel like modalism fits them. They wear one hat, they take it off, and then they do the next job or whatever. But in modalism, it would simply be that, okay, there's one God, he's Jesus for now, and then uh, when the Jesus role is done in its point, then he changes mode and he becomes the Father mode, and then he switches and becomes the Holy Spirit mode. The only problem is you really have to throw chapter 14 out uh, out with the uh, bathwater because all three are existing at the same time concurrently, all three actively doing their roles. So that modalism thing just won't work at all. Well, there's variations of these, but this brings us down to the third one, Trinitarianism. Hmm, how would that work? Well, it simply says there are three entities to God. Three entities to God. And you can find in a very simple set of questions, if that's the way you're going, as you look at chapter 14, in particular you can go, is Jesus God? Let's try it out. Is Jesus God? Is the Heavenly Father God? Is the Holy Spirit God? Yes. Congratulations, you are a unitarian. You are a <laughs> unitarian. Whoa! And the pastors rode out of town in a rail. You are Trinitarian. Now, you might run into problems with how the three become one, but just the fact, by definition, if God is all three and distinct, but yet one, then you're Trinitarian. But I guess I would say I'm a Trinitarian because Jesus is. There is the reality of God as a holy trinity. There's the reality of it. And then there is the doctrine of it. Problem with doctrines are they try to put in human language a spiritual reality that sometimes were really stretched. And back in the day, the guys all got together and they, that's the way I 
define the Nicene Creed as they all got together. Uh, and they decided to try and put this in words, and so they, they did this. First, they, God is one God and exists in the form of three persons. Whoops, that's not working. No, we gotta, we've got to make that a little better than that. So they've, they've got the qualifiers in there. God is one God and exists in the form of three co-eternal, hmm, that works, and consubstantial, oh, fancy but nice word, it works, persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. But there's a beautiful problem, and I love and bless the brothers and sisters who push back on the wording of the doctrine. Because it says they looked hard at this, and something very honestly comes through, is the word person can cause us problems. Even when you put on these these extra qualifiers, God exceeds personhood as we understand it and moves beyond that to something else. So co-eternal and consubstantial are great words, but really they fall somewhat short. Now, I don't want anybody to get me wrong here and go out and say, the pastor just threw the doctrine of the Trinity out the window because then Bob and I will be having a conversation in the parking lot and uh, Chris will be the man next week. No, what I'm getting at here is that I'm not trying to wordsmith anything because you are looking at a doctrine that has been implicit for 5,000 years and explicit for 1,800 years. What I'm going meaning by that is that there were all the dots there to connect way back to Noah. <laughs> and in the New Testament, Jesus in chapter 14 is starting to connect these dots for us. He wants us to understand God is God. If you have seen Him, you have seen the Father. But each of them in their roles still have fulfilled part of your destiny by His eternal plan. Those 20 promises come into this, just that chapter alone. The human definition, uh, that word person, may fall a little short. We may have to stretch ourselves a little bit in that. However, God is God. However, those entities, there are three distinct personhoods, personalities that make God, and they come together in a unity. There we can't understand, because we can be in unity, but not like this. Not like this. Human words will fail. That being said, you cannot be transformed without God, the Holy Spirit. You cannot be saved without Christ, the God who died for you. And the whole thing never would have happened without God, the Father, in His authority that caused it all to happen. All three in one. Tough to understand, but at least that much 
you must understand. That's where your salvation comes from. So we have a God who is impossible by human thinking describe himself. You know what the question comes down to? Do you believe him? Do you believe him? Not me, not some doctrine. Do you believe God himself? Do you believe the last words coming out of the mouth of Jesus Christ? An expression of three, each playing a crucial role in your salvation and transformation. Yet one triune God. And at stake, a list of 20 promises directly related in this chapter to that. Do you believe Him? It's only then, now catch the beautiful symmetry of this. The chapter starts out with, I'm going to tell you a bunch of stuff so that you will not be troubled. And it ends with, if you believe and you understand what I'm telling you in here, I'm telling you there's bad things coming, but you will not be troubled. That's what the chapter is really all about. In your understanding of God, I can guarantee you, every one of us in here are going to face another dark hour somewhere, in some way. And God says, if you understand this about me, your heart doesn't have to be troubled. Do you believe Him?